Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Curious Canadian History. I'm your host... David Boris. Perhaps no single event in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War aroused so much widespread and continued interest in Canada than the events surrounding Kurt Meyer. An admitted war criminal, a diehard Nazi, a ferocious battlefield commander, Meyer ordered the execution of numerous Canadian soldiers during the fighting for Normandy. Despite being found guilty and becoming the only Nazi war criminal imprisoned outside of Germany, his fate became tied up in larger global events, and Canadian opinion shifted to reflect these larger global events, ultimately changing Meyer's fate forever. This is Season 8, Episode 1, Kurt Meyer, A War Criminal in Canada. Today's book recommendations are the first one, Howard Margolian's Conduct Unbecoming, The Story of the Murder of Prisoners of War in Normandy, published by University of Toronto Press in 1998. The second one is Tim Cook's The Fight for History, published by Alan Lane in 2020. This latter book has a brilliant chapter tying the Kurt Meyer episode into the broader struggle by Canadians to remember their country's World War II experience. Kurt Meyer was born in Jerksheim, Germany, in late December 1910. Meyer became a fanatical devotee of Nazism, joining the Hitler Youth at the age of 15 and becoming a full party member five years later in 1930. During the late 1920s, he was a policeman, but by 1931, he had joined the SS, the Nazi Internal Security Force, and later transferred to the Waffen-SS when it was formed, the Waffen-SS being the military arm of the Nazi party. Meyer participated in numerous actions in the late 1930s, early 1940s, including the Anschluss with Austria, the occupation of Czechoslovakia, 
He was wounded during the invasion of Poland in 1939 and received the Iron Cross for his actions. Later, he received it again during operations against British forces near Dunkirk. He served in Yugoslavia and northern Greece and then on the Eastern Front during Operation Barbarossa. His superiors all noted that he was a superb small unit commander and earned the fierce loyalty of the soldiers that followed him. He was also a mass murderer who talked openly of murdering civilians. Most notorious was in early 1943, where he was personally responsible for the destruction of an entire Russian village, including the murder of every one of its civilian inhabitants. In June of 1944, Kurt Meyer was in command of a brigade as part of the 12th SS Panzer Hitler Jugend Division. This was a crack tank division made up of diehard Nazi youth, generally 16 to 18 years of age, who had been indoctrinated into the Nazi ideology since birth. The units within the division were led by seasoned officers like Meyer, who had extensive combat experience throughout Europe. During the early days of the Normandy fighting, Meyer was in charge of a brigade responsible for attacking Canadian positions just north of Caen. These positions were held by the Canadian 3rd Division, who had been part of the D-Day landing force, and by the end of the 6th of June, had established a series of defensive pockets just north of Caen in preparation for expected German counterattacks. Those counterattacks came on the 7th of June from the Hitler Youth of the 12th SS, and during the fighting that day, nearly two dozen Canadian soldiers from the North Nova Scotia Highlanders and the Sherbrooke Fusiliers were taken prisoner and brought for interrogation back to Meyer's headquarters at the Abbey Darden, just outside of Caen's northwest outskirts and approximately 22 kilometers south of the Juneau Beach landings. The captured Canadians were interrogated, and then, on Meyer's orders, one by one, were taken around back and shot. It's said that as each Canadian soldier was selected, he shook the hands of every one of his fellow prisoners, many with tears in their eyes, before being escorted to his death. Now, it wasn't until the 9th of July that the Canadians finally drove the Germans out of the area, and within a day or two, the mass grave at the Abbey was discovered. Despite the fact that the once powerful 12th SS was utterly destroyed in the Normandy fighting, something like only 500 soldiers out of the 21,000 originals remained, Meyer survived. He was later captured by Canadians in September 1944, and immediately the Canadians were calling for his head, and a case to prosecute Meyer as a war criminal was put in motion. The lawyer tasked with prosecuting Meyer was Lieutenant Colonel Bruce MacDonald, former commander of the Essex Scottish and a pre-war lawyer from Windsor, Ontario. Many of our listeners will probably be familiar with the Nuremberg trials that took place after the war where many senior Nazis were tried and convicted of major war crimes. While Canada played no part in Nuremberg, Meyer's trial would become Canada's Nuremberg equivalent. 
Meyer himself, being held by the Canadians, denied giving any orders to execute prisoners. MacDonald was able to find some of the surviving soldiers from the 12th SS, but no surprise, most were unwilling to talk. However, MacDonald's case was made when he found a Polish man who had been conscripted into the 12th SS, a man named Jan Janasek. Janasek was willing to talk, being no friend of the Nazis, and he confirmed that Meyer did indeed tell his soldiers to take no prisoners. Despite MacDonald believing he had the case sewn up shut, things became much more complicated. Back in Ottawa, Prime Minister Mackenzie King's federal cabinet was actually unsure if they even wanted to prosecute a war criminal, and some suggested that the case should be handed over to the British. But persistent Canadian military officials swayed the cabinet, and it eventually agreed to move forward with the trial. The trial was set to take place in Aurich in northern Germany, about 120 kilometers northwest of Bremen, near the North Sea. A Canadian military tribunal was formed, made up of five senior officers acting as judges. This included Major General Harry Foster, who had commanded 7th Canadian Infantry Brigade throughout Normandy and eventually went on to command 4th Canadian Armoured Division. Now, Foster was technically the senior judge on the panel, the other four being Brigadiers H.A. Sparling, Ian Johnston, H.P. Bell Irving, and J.A. Roberts. In the unenviable task of defending Meyer was former commander of the Perth Regiment, Colonel Maurice Andrew, who had served primarily in the Italian theater. The trial began on 10th December 1945, and MacDonald presented an extremely strong case which he had been building for nearly six months. MacDonald had found several witnesses, though none of the actual SS who pulled the trigger, the most important, of course, being Yenisek, who recalled Meyer saying, Why do you bring prisoners to the rear? Those murderers only eat off our rations. For two weeks, MacDonald presented his case, while Meyer's lawyer, Maurice Andrew, had little in the way of a response. The big moment came when Meyer finally took the stand, in which he remained stoic in his refusal to admit he ordered the murders and suggested that it was a rogue few soldiers who carried them out without his knowledge. The events of the trial were followed closely by Canadians from coast to coast, being reported in numerous newspapers across the country. The final arguments were made just before Christmas, and after a short break for the holidays, the tribunal reconvened to present the verdict. The tribunal found that undoubtedly, Canadian soldiers had been murdered, but the tribunal rejected Yesenek's testimony as unreliable. The tribunal then deliberated further and eventually found Meyer guilty on three of the six charges laid against him, including the second most serious charge, that Meyer was responsible for allowing the murders to occur under his command. On the 28th of December, 1945, Meyer was found guilty and sentenced to death by firing squad. But the story does not end there. Based on unusual procedural rules, the verdict had to be reviewed twice 
by a senior Canadian officer before the sentence could be officially carried out. That senior officer for the first review was Major General Chris Vokes. Vokes was known as a tough and sometimes heartless commander who had led 1st Canadian Infantry Division in Italy and 4th Canadian Armoured Division in Northwest Europe. Vokes was uncomfortable having to pass judgment over war crimes, and in particular was concerned that because the Nuremberg trials had not yet occurred, Canada might be overstepping by sentencing Meyer to death. Despite his misgivings, this was, after all, a brand new area in international law and laws of war, Vokes confirmed the execution. Now, incredibly, the sentence had to go through one more review before it could be carried out. This one by none other than Lieutenant General Guy Simmons, arguably one of Canada's most effective Second World War generals, and someone who had led Second Canadian Corps through Northwest Europe. Yet, in an oddly strange twist, because Simmons was currently in the Netherlands, Canadian military headquarters in London ordered that the review be done once again by Vokes because Vokes was the senior officer still in Germany. He was commanding the Canadian Army Occupation Force. This decision was regardless of the fact that he had already done a review, an odd bureaucratic moment that would have profound effects. In the second review by Vokes, he had a change of heart. You see, Vokes flew to London to consult with other senior officers, and learned that many of them recommended a commuted sentence. Despite the fact that Vokes had signed off on Meyer's death sentence not days before the second review, Vokes now decided to commute his sentence to life in prison. Vokes's main concern was setting a precedent that a commander in the field was responsible with his life for his subordinate decisions, especially in the absence of any written orders proving he had ordered the death of prisoners of war. As an interesting aside, Vokes did infamously order the raising of a German village in 1944, though did not order the murder of its inhabitants, as Meyer had done in Russia, and no German civilians were killed during the action. But one wonders how much of Vokes's own war experience filtered into this new decision during the second review. By mid-January 1946, Meyer had learned that he would be spared. And around that time, so too did Canadian newspapers and thus the Canadian public. Most Canadians were shocked and angered at the commuted sentence. Editorials across the country denounced the decision while the families of the murdered POWs wrote to their MPs in disgust. MacDonald and his team of lawyers were gutted by the decision, and frankly, many saw the trial now as a failure of justice. In fact, the government received so much mail regarding the commutation that it created 12 standard reply letters in order to deal with the massive influx of objections. It was clear in 1946 that the vast, vast majority of Canadians felt that the decision not to execute Meyer was a miscarriage of justice and a betrayal of the murdered Canadian POWs. Regardless, one of the first questions after the trial 
was where Meyer was to be incarcerated. Canadian officials wanted him incarcerated in Canada, but the country had no facility for war criminals. Nonetheless, Meyer was quietly put on board a ship in April 1946, and during the week-long passage to Canada, freely roamed the decks interacting with passengers, many of whom were war brides and children. When the ship arrived in Halifax, he was snuck off the boat wearing a Canadian private's uniform and eventually was imprisoned in Dorchester Prison, New Brunswick. And for five years, he was nearly forgotten about. Curious Canadian history. We'll be back after the break. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Folks, if you're looking for ad-free content from Curious Canadian History, look no further. Sign up to Patreon today. All you need to do is donate one or two bucks to the podcast via Patreon, and you can access all our episodes for free without any advertisement or sponsorship content. The fact is, we do this for free here at Curious Canadian History, and we need both advertising revenue and your personal support to help us survive and continue to produce this show for free. Patreon allows you to support the podcast safely, securely, and with the benefit of access to ad-free episodes. Furthermore, there's little surprise tidbits that I post weekly for those book lovers out there that's only accessible for our Patreon supporters. So that's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Sign up today. Now back to our regularly scheduled program. It was in February 1950, that a McLean's Magazine article came out challenging the fairness of the Kurt Meyer trial, arguing that several fundamental pillars of Canadian law were ignored in prosecuting him. The author, Ralph Allen, failed to discuss in any detail what Meyer had actually done, and in fact portrayed him as a good soldier and inspiring leader. McLean's was, and is, a popular magazine, and it's no surprise that this Yahoo writing it caused quite a stir with his poorly written and poorly contextualized article. What made this so strange was that Ralph Allen had covered the original trial, and back in 1946, he even wrote that Meyer's crimes were something out of, and I quote, an oriental horror tale. Yet in 1950, he now wrote that the trial violated some of the most precious principles of Canadian law. Apparently, he forgot all about the horror of Meyer's crime. Just for a pause here, folks, this is a great learning moment, because right now, many of you might be saying, what an idiot. How could someone in their right mind try and defend a Nazi war criminal? And I wholeheartedly agree with that sentiment. But what's crazy is there are people today writing, reading, and talking about Second World War history who do the very same thing. 
While generally not authors for respected journals like Maclean's, there are people out there who write about these figures from the Second World War, and they're almost always Nazi officers, in a way that chooses to focus solely on their battlefield exploits and completely ignore the ideologically murderous regime that they served and served enthusiastically. There is, in fact, an entire underground subculture of military history buffs who choose to ignore the realities of what the Nazis stood for and what they did in order to instead focus on a very narrow aspect of their wartime battlefield experience. So I wanted to pause and just point out that it's not just some Yahoo from the past, but people today doing the very same thing. But I digress. In the aftermath of Allen's article, McLean's was swamped with letters complaining about his article, but interestingly, there were quite a few letters also questioning why the execution of a defenseless, surrendered soldier was acceptable in the first place. It was as if some Canadians had forgotten all about Meyer's crimes, and the McLean's article became a bastion for a growing number of Canadians questioning Meyer's imprisonment. But here's where things take on a more international flavor. West Germany, in 1950, was now a prosperous, rebuilt ally of the West. In fact, it was West Germany who was at the point of the spear, so to speak, in terms of facing down the perceived threat from the Soviet Union. Many senior officers in the newly formed North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, argued that a rearmed West Germany was crucial in defending Europe against the possibility of a Soviet invasion. Other nations, like France, were rather uncomfortable with the idea of a rearmed Germany of any sort. Regardless, many West German leaders understood that they had a bit of a bargaining chip when it came to repatriating German soldiers still held by the Allies. So in Meyer's case, an argument was put forward by West German authorities that he might be more useful in uniform for West Germany than rotting in a New Brunswick prison. And because Meyer was the only war criminal being held outside of Europe, they argued at the very least he should be held in Germany itself. Now, in 1950, one must remember Canada was contributing soldiers and equipment to a NATO brigade in Western Europe, as well as contemplating sending troops to Korea to help defend South Korea against the North. The international context was very much that communism was spreading, and it was going to take a large coalition to help stop it. In some ways, people stopped seeing Meyer as the enemy and started to see him as part of the broader solution against the new enemy, the Soviet Union. Throughout 1950, West German diplomats lobbied Louis Saint Laurent's liberal government for Meyer's transfer to Germany, implying that Meyer's incarceration in Canada was contributing to a souring of relations between West Germany and her potential Western allies. Laurent's government continued to debate the issue well into 1951, when later that year, the government turned to the Canadian Chief of General Staff, Lieutenant General Guy Simmons, to get his opinion. His opinion was this. Meyer had not been tried fairly, and he was not responsible for the actions of his men. 
This sealed the deal. The opinion of who was perhaps our best general in the Second World War tipped the scales in favor of Meyer, and the government ordered Meyer released and sent back to Germany. Meyer was quietly and rapidly taken from Dorchester Prison and put on a plane back to Germany, where he ended up in Verl, imprisoned alongside other notorious war criminals such as Albert Kesselring and Erich von Manstein. When word got out that Meyer was gone, the government was bombarded with negative publicity and even public protests. The government was accused of misleading the Canadian public. The conservative opposition attacked the liberal decision. Everywhere, people were up in arms. But the decision had been made. Meyer was now the responsibility of the British who ran the prison in Verl. Louis Saint Laurent could wash his hands of the whole matter. But the reaction to this news was much more divided than back in 1946. Some Canadians spoke of the atomic bombs as evidence of Allied mass murder. Even some Canadian veterans alluded to the killing of German POWs as a sign that bad things happen in war and both sides could be blamed. Others wrote about the unfairness of the trial, and still others simply stated that all war was murder and singling one person out for punishment was not right. It was clear that by the early 1950s, Canadians were not nearly as united when it came to opinions on Meyer. Now the West German government continued to lobby for his full release, and in 1954 they got it. A doctor had claimed that incarceration had damaged Meyer's health to the point that he should be released on compassionate grounds. The British put up little fight, and even less a peep was heard from the Canadian cabinet, who commuted his sentence from life to 14 years. This was then further reduced when a British official released Meyer for good behavior. From a death sentence to a life sentence to 14 years to less than 10 years, Meyer was now free. The Canadian response to Meyer's release was even more divided than in 1950-51. Some Canadians argued it was important to maintain good relations with West Germany. And if Meyer could be an asset to stopping the Soviet Union, then he should be used as such. The Cornerbrook Western Star argued that, and I quote, neither side emerged blameless from the struggle, and Meyer could not be blamed for terrible things done in war. The Quebec Chronicle Telegraph wrote, if Meyer was guilty, then so were all Canadians, as all Canadians were accessories after the fact, as they supplied the weapons which killed in the war. On a personal note, this last comment is so stupid that it was frustrating to read out loud. The point to be made here is that by 1954, a vocal and growing minority of Canadians were not opposed to Meyer being freed. It is accurate to say, however, that the majority of Canadians still demanded justice, but more and more were forgetting Meyer's crimes in the context of the tension of the Cold War. As one historian wrote, the war began to recede from public memory and the new threat of Soviet expansionism superseded fears of a Nazi revival. Now, Meyer received a hero's welcome when he arrived back in his hometown, 
An estimated 5,000 people lined the streets to welcome him back, including many of his old SS comrades. And Meyer remained unapologetic about his wartime actions. He went on to become a leading advocate for veteran rights for former SS soldiers and was, in fact, a leading member of a Waffen-SS veterans organization and continually denied any wartime atrocities were committed by the SS. He even released a book called Grenadier, where he denied the murders of Canadians ever took place and presented the trial as a complete sham, citing many sympathetic Canadian newspaper articles that were written, including the Maclean's article by Ralph Allen. Meyer died in late December 1961. He had lived out the rest of his years not as a NATO soldier or an anti-Soviet advisor, but as a traveling beer salesman. One of his main clients were soldiers stationed at the military base near the town of Soest. This was a NATO base, and most of these soldiers were Canadian. An SS officer, a diehard Nazi, a prosecuted war criminal, a general who had ordered the murder of Canadian soldiers, freed from prison, spending the remainder of his days advocating on behalf of Waffen-SS veterans and selling beer to Canadian soldiers. I want to thank you all for listening today. Don't forget, you can find me on Twitter, at Doc Boris. That's at D-O-C-B-O-R-Y-S. You can find us on Facebook. You can find us on Instagram. You can find us on Patreon. And you can find us on all podcast listening devices. And please do not hesitate to write and leave a comment. We love to hear from you. I'm David Boris. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious, friends.